Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope that this message from Pastor Jason Charles and the City Collective team challenges and inspires you. Enjoy. Hey, God bless y'all. Thanks, Pastor. Thanks for giving me this chance to to join in the story of Jacob. I don't know how many weeks. Did you know that there's an eight-week series of Jacob going on? This is six, week six. And uh, so welcome, whether you've been part of it or not. So Pastor Jason asked me a while ago to, to do week six, and he gave me Genesis chapter 31. That's the chapter we're looking at today. And I got to be honest, when I read the chapter, I thought, ah, uh, he didn't want to preach this one. <laughs> That's why he gave it to me. In fact, I didn't really want to preach this one either for a little while, but, but I just kind of read it more and more, and, and I kind of soaked in it a little bit more, and, and I got more and more engaged with it. And don't you find that with scripture for those of you who read the Bible? Just reading it once is it enough? Like, I recommend reading it over and over and over again, like the same passage. You sink deeper, start to see stuff. So I got fired up, and I really started to engage with this chapter. In fact, I started to engage with it so much, I came up with three different messages. And you need to know this about me. I'm a youngest child, I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs, and I'm a 7 on the Enneagram, which means I'm going to do it all. Because I, I don't, don't make me choose. That's not my style. So I am going to do it all. Three messages, and every message has got a question with it that I think will help us really hear the Word of God for us. So if you'd enjoy, uh, join me, I just want to pray for a moment, would you? God, I know I need your help to think clearly and to use words that would bless and build up and be true to you. And I uh, pray for my sisters and brothers in the hall here that you would give them what they need that they would listen attentively and honestly, and that your Holy Spirit would impress the truth on each one of our hearts. We pray it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so last week, chapter 28 ends. um, This is Jacob's encounter with God at a place called Bethel, which is the house of God, and there was the ladder, and you know, maybe you remember in that story, whether you're here or not, it's a very well-known story. And, and I think Pastor was teaching that this was a pivot point. This was a spiritual pivot point for, for uh, Jacob. And this is the first message that I want to think together with is this. The first message is we all have a pivot point. We all have a Bethel. Everybody has a Bethel. We have a personal Bethel. We have a personal Bethel. Uh, for me, it was, uh, I think of that as uh, the spring of my 12th grade year. I spent most of my high school years, uh, junior high and high school years, just being a goof. I was the youngest child, just trying to have fun. And, and towards the end of high school, I really got in this tug of war with God, where God was saying, when will you uh, let me love you? When will you follow me? And I was sort of pushing back and go, yeah, I will, but just not right now, because I'm busy. I don't know if you've got in those tug of wars with God where he's calling one thing and you're just sort of putting him off. Until finally, spring of uh, my 12th grade year, which you're curious about is 1972, which is a long time ago, I uh, just kind of put up my hands and and surrendered. I surrendered because I realized that God's love and grace was relentless. It would never quit. And I was reaching the conclusion that my life, my way was purposeless. He was relentless. I was purposeless. I gave up. Uh, we're looking after our grandson these days, and when, when he's on the floor and he wants to get picked up, he just raises his hands, right? And then we reach down and grab him. And I love that. That's kind of what I did to God. I just said, look, please take me. And so that was a spiritual pivot point for me. Cheryl and I got married, and because and, uh, there's many Bethels in our life, right? There are many pivot points. There's many Bethels. Uh, one is a couple that, that has just changed 
way we live. As we were actually living here in Surrey, uh, I was teaching high school at Princess Margaret. Uh, we had uh, our first house. We had our first baby. And then God kind of called us. God's like that, right? Wherever you are, God quite often says, what about this? <laughs> or there's more. Or why don't you do this? And so we were wrestling with this together. As a couple, we were wrestling with this, and, and we felt compelled to go to a seminary in Chicago and uh, just change the course of our life. And I just want to say a couple things uh, about that, because I think it might be relevant for you and maybe the Bethels and the pivot points you have. It was really hard. We went to Chicago, and it was not easy. Towards the end of the first year at seminary, we were, uh, we were broke, we were lonely, we were discouraged. Uh, we literally took the money from our son's piggy bank, uh, got one of our seminary friends to look after him. We went across, to, uh, across the street to this ice cream thing. We had enough money for one one-scoop Sunday, And uh, we put it on the table between us, and we said, let's quit. Like, it was not easy. And sometimes I think when I, when I think about following Jesus, a lot of times we live with these mythical formulas, like if we're doing God's will, it's easy. And if it's hard, it must not be God's will. And it's like, there are no formulas. Here's what I know about following Jesus for almost 50 years. There are no formulas that explain the adventure of following Christ. We need to pray for discernment, but the formulas just don't play. And so we're sitting there wrestling this. And here's what helped us, is we had a Bethel. We, were, we could remember that we had sat together and prayed together and talked together and talked to other people in our lives that affirmed it. And so we went back to that moment and we said, it sucks right now. We don't want to be here right now. But we remember, Bethel, that we were called and we were supposed to go and we're supposed to be here. And this is really important. When you have these pivot moments, can I just encourage you to memorialize them? <laughs> Tell somebody. Write it down. Uh, Make it a moment that you can look back to, just like Jacob did. He piled up some stones, and he knew the place where he had encountered God. And it's important to rehearse that, friends, because there's moments where we get discouraged, and we get lost, and you can go back to that pivot point. Okay, that's the message. Here's the question. What kind of commitment to following God are you able to make today or willing to make today? You see, the end of chapter 28, i got to be honest was kind of underwhelming to me. He gets to the end of chapter 20, uh, 28, verse 20 and 21. Jacob says, if you go with me and watch over me as I travel, and if you give me food, and if you give me clothes and bring me safely home again, you will be my God. See, I, I find that kind of underwhelming, right? Like, where's the, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll pay any cost, right? Isn't that the kind of commitments we're, we're, we're hearing about? And I'm reading this from Jacob where he says, well, if you do this, this, and this, then you can be my God. And here's, here's what I take away from it. We all live with partial faith. Whatever commitment you're able to make today, just make it. Make the faith commitment you are able to make. Don't get hung up about the faith commitment you're unable to make today. What's the next step for you? What's just a little bit more faith to you? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Mark chapter 9. A man has brought his son to Jesus to be healed. And he says to Jesus, you can heal him. Please heal him if you can. And Jesus says, what do you mean if you can? With faith, anything can be done. And the man says this. And this is almost my life verse. This is almost my life verse from Mark chapter, 20, uh, Mark chapter 9 verse 24. I do have faith. Please help me to have even more. That's a great prayer. 
So Jacob, he's doing the best he can. <laughs> I, I read the end of chapter 28 as, you know, him saying, right now, this is the faith I can offer. And so he does. And, uh, but there's more to come. Okay, so Bethel's this great moment. I realize I'm not even in chapter 31 yet, see? Maybe you want to text your friends, I'm going to be late for lunch. I don't know. I'll do my best, okay? That's first message. We all have a Bethel. And the question is, what's the faith commitment that we're able to make today? Can I encourage you just to make it? It's not too small. Just make it and build on that. Okay, so let's go through. We're fast-forwarding in chapters 29 and 30. Here's what happens. Jacob gets married two times. Jacob becomes a dad 11 times. A lot happens. He becomes very, very rich. End of chapter uh, 30, verse 43, it says this, Jacob became exceedingly prosperous, and he had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys because that's how they measured being rich then. In that culture, man, he was, he had it. He was there. And that's where we jump into chapter 31. At the end of chapter 30, I mean, all those blessings, if you've been following the, uh, the teaching that Pastor Jason's been doing, we talked about the blessings and the birth rate that were given to him, and you start going, okay, this is it. It's all coming true. It's all coming to pass. He's got all this stuff. And then real life crashes in on uh, chapter 31, verse 1. Real life crashes in. His family shows up. His family shows up. And uh, his, uh, Jacob's um, brothers-in-law show up, and in verse 1, they start to rag. They're jealous. They're envious. They're even angry, and they start saying things like, yeah, you know what? All the money Jacob's got, that should be ours. That's our father's money. Jacob's kind of taking advantage of our dad and taking advantage of us, and he's got money that belongs to us. So, so there's, there's jealousy and there's enmity within the family. And here's what I've learned, and maybe you have too. When you start hanging out like this, it's contagious, isn't it? This kind of negativity, it's contagious. So they start ripping on Jacob. Jacob is in the field, it says in verse 4. He sends for his wives and says, come on out here. So they come out to the field so that he can rag on Laban, which is his father-in-law, which is their dad, by the way, which is a little risky thing for him to be ripping on their father. But you see, it's so contagious. He's, he's criticizing Laban, and he says to his wives, your father cheated me. He changed my wages 10 times, and he goes on and on and on. And then they chime in, because this is contagious. When you start getting negative, and you start riding in your family, everybody kind of chips in. And so in verse 14, Rachel and, and uh, Leah uh, jump in, and they say, yes. There's nothing left for us to inherit from our father. He treats us like foreigners, and he's cheated us out of the bride price that should have been ours. So you see, they're jealous now too, right? Like we've been hard done by. Our dad hasn't treated us properly. And, and so now you've got this real cool thing going on, right? The Jacob's brothers-in-law are mad at him, and Jacob and his wives are mad at the family. And so Jacob decides, like a mature young man, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> I'm just going to shake the dust off my feet, and I'm gone. And he sneaks out. He tricks, he deceives Laban, it says in chapter 31. He deceives Laban so he doesn't know what's going on, and he packs his people up and his flocks, which is a big deal. It's kind of slow moving to move all your flocks and stuff. So he packs up, and he sneaks away in the dead of night. 
The quality of their family relationship is such that he doesn't say goodbye. He doesn't, uh, you know, wish everybody well. He just skedaddles. The quality of the family relationship is so good that Rachel, Laban's daughter, sneaks into Laban's tent and steals his prized possessions, his uh, household idols. It was uh, some, some worship that they did then, sort of ancestral worship. So Rachel steals stuff, and they sneak away in the dark. Three days later, Laban hears about it, and then he mounts up and uh, takes off. It's kind of like, I picture a Western, right? You see the Westerns? You know, after they rob the bank, they all get on the horses and, you know, take off after the robbers. This is what Laban's doing. He saddles up, except it's sort of in slow motion because it's camels. It's, you know, so, but, but he loads up, and he starts going after them, and he catches up to them. And, you know, isn't the theme for this whole thing throwdown? So there's a throwdown in a place called Mizpah, because Laban is there with his clansmen, and they catch up to Jacob and his clan, and they are going to go toe-to-toe. Laban confronts him in verse 27. He says, why did you flee secretly? And on top of that, why did you steal my stuff? And Joseph fires back and, and focuses. He ignores the first question. He focuses on the second. He says, hey, if any of us stole from you, they shall be put to death, which is a pretty interesting comment because unbeknownst to him, his wife has stolen stuff. Do you get the family? Like, there's a lot of lying and deceit. Like, nobody really trusts anybody in this clan. That's kind of what's going on. And, uh, and uh, so they search all the tents, and they can't find this stuff. And in the midst of all this, Rachel is sitting smugly on her camel because the stolen goods are in the saddlebags on her camel. And Rachel, being a woman of integrity and honesty and transparency, says, you can't search these saddlebags because she lies and says, I'm having my period. I can't get up. So this is a messed up family, right? So picture this moment, right? They are ready to go. They are ready to go. They're toe-to-toe. This seriously is a throwdown. Who's going to attack who? You got Laban and his crew over here, and you got Jacob and his crew over here. They're both angry. They both have reasons to be upset. But Laban steps up and makes peace. Laban has heard from God, and God said to him, make peace. So in chapter 31, verse 41, Laban points out, Leah and Rachel are my daughters, and their children belong to me, and all these things today really are mine too. But then he goes on to say this, but I am ready to make an agreement with you, Jacob, and we'll pile up some large rocks to remind us of this agreement. Remember, Bethel, you got to remember stuff. We're going to pile up these rocks. This pile of rocks and this large rock have been set up to remind us I must never go beyond them to attack you, and you must never go beyond them to attack me. So, the message is we all have to come to grips with our family. This is the second message. If we're going to follow God, if we're going to be authentic in following God and live into what He has for us, we're going to have to come to grips with our family. Now, I hope you don't come toe-to-toe with your family like uh, Jacob and Laban did, but if it comes to that, maybe you will. But at that moment, somebody's going to have to be the peacemaker. Somebody, whatever your family system is like, and maybe as we've described the deceit and the cheating and the uh, enmity and the jealousy, uh, maybe that sounded like your family. It's common to all families. If you're going to resolve that, somebody's got to step up and say, no more. We're going to make peace, and no longer am I going to attack you, and no longer are you going to attack me. Let's not harm each other anymore and you don't harm me anymore. That's what Laban appealed for, and Jacob agreed to it. And so at this place called Mizpah, 
they made this kind of agreement. So here's the second question. Are we at peace with our family? Are we at peace with our family? That's a big question. It really shapes the quality of our life. It shapes the quality of our life with God. Until we make peace with our families and then choose a new way to live, we will just continue the pattern. Like whatever has broken our hearts in our family, we will, even though we try not to, we will end up doing the same stuff until we look at it and choose a new way. Let me show you what I mean, okay? So here's Jacob. I think I got these slides up, right? Do you have, do you have the little diagram slide of uh, Jacob's family? Okay, so here's Jacob, right? And, and you know, you already heard this story because pastors already preached it. So you got Rebecca, who so favors her son. You know, parents always tell you that they love you all equally. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Certainly not true for Rebecca. You know the story. You can go back and read it. She so favors Jacob. She says, I want you to have right. I want you to get most of the possessions because that was Hebrew law. So here's the deal. We'll lie to your father. We'll trick your father. We'll get the birthright. We'll shaft your brother Esau. And you'll get the money. Like, this is not good parenting. This is not quality parenting. And so it creates that enmity. And at this stage in the story, Jacob, Esau's swearing to kill Jacob. Jacob's hiding from Esau. Uh, and Rebecca has this uh, really tricky relationship with Jacob. Well, how, how would you get like that? Because I think most people go, that's not a really great family. Well, let's go look at an early generation, okay? We're going to go to the next slide. So... If we got it, there you go. So, you know, Isaac was also the favored son of his mom. That, that she so cherished Isaac that when uh, Ishmael was born uh, to Abraham, Abraham had another son named Ishmael, uh, and when he was born, Sarah was so jealous and so determined that Isaac was going to be the guy and, and uh, Ishmael was not, she convinced Abraham to drive Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert which is fundamentally let them die, right? Because they're going to die out there. She basically says to Abraham, kill them, sort of in an indirect way. That's the kind of clan Isaac came from. Favoritism, enmity, murder, and it just flows through the family. And until we come to grips with our family, it's very easy for us to just replicate the history. Go one more generation. Okay, we're going to flash forward a little bit. The next slide shows, okay, so this is Jacob's clan, right? So there's Leah and Rachel, and then there's the other two wives. Well, actually, they're the servants. It's complicated, okay? <laughs> Eleven children, four different moms. It's complicated. Twelve children, I should say. Eleven boys, one girl. This is a complicated family. But who does some bad parenting again? Jacob so favors Joseph that he creates enmity within the family. This is the third generation <laughs> that has so favored their children that they have destroyed the unity in the family. How does this keep happening? Until we come to grips with our family, it will keep happening. And so uh, the, the interesting story is, well, you know, uh, he so favors Joseph that the brothers hate him. They want to kill him. They ultimately sell him, and he becomes a slave in Egypt. They fake his death. This is how, how bent the family is, right? They fake his death. They take Joseph's coat back with animal blood on it, and they say, oh, mom, dad is so sad. Joseph died. And they watch their parents' heart break. And they live this lie for 10 years. Like, that, 
Those are not good children. Those are not good children, but this is a messed up family. And, and this is how families get until we make a choice to be different. You know, when I graduated from high school, my parents gave me a suitcase. Now, just think about that a little bit. I, I think the symbolism was lost on me. But like, hey, you graduated. Here's the suitcase. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> I don't know if that was their message or not. I did end up going away to college that fall. But they gave me a suitcase uh, for my high school graduation. And I believed that the suitcase was empty. Because when I looked in it, there was nothing in it. But you know what? When we leave our homes, we all carry suitcases. And there's stuff in them. There's all kinds of stuff in the suitcase we take from our family. And I think one of the tasks of us growing to be mature human beings and mature Christ followers is to open the, the suitcase and sort it out. To give thanks for the good stuff that's in there. To get rid of the bad stuff that's in there. And that involves forgiveness, sometimes profound forgiveness. Which is not to say that the things that happened was correct. But just that we need to let it go. And that we have to choose a new way. We have to choose a new way so that we do not fall back into the same patterns. If you flash forward to the New Testament, do you know this teaching from Jesus? He said, when you clean a house out, if you blow the demons out of that house, if you don't replace it with something good, they will come back. That's what Jesus said. So it's all great to come to grips with our past. But if we don't choose a better future, we will lapse back. So here's the rest of that story. You go, can you go back to that last uh, slide with the, the, all the families on it? So you know this story. So Joseph, by God's hand, becomes the second most powerful guy in, in Egypt. There's a famine in uh, Palestine, and his brothers show up in front of him one day looking for food. He knows them. They don't know him. And he has this perfect chance to continue the family cycle. He's three generations deep into revenge and jealousy and anger and even murder. And he's the second most powerful guy in Egypt. He can say, cut their heads off and they're gone. And he says, I'm done. This whole family dysfunction thing? And I've been a victim. <laughs> I've been sold into slavery. I was treated like useless by my family, but I am not gonna return evil for evil. I'm going to return good for evil. And he was reconciled, and he saved them and provided food. And here's the kicker. I love this. He had two kids of his own, okay? You talk about generational change. Joseph says, it ends with my generation. I'm not doing this anymore. And he has two sons. One's named Manasseh, which means God has caused me to forget all my trouble. And Ephraim means to be fruitful, he chose positive names. He could have said, he could have named his kids, why me? Life's not fair. My family sucks. And, you know, a lot of us inadvertently adopt those names, don't we? And Joseph said, by God's grace, I am ending the dysfunction of my clan, and I'm going to choose a new way. Sisters and brothers, the message is we've got to come to grips with our family. And the question is, how are you doing? Are you at peace with your family? What would it take? Well, you have to be like Laban, who had reason to be upset with Jacob, but he said, look, I want to I stop. I want to stop. Can we mark this today and say, let's not hurt each other anymore? Maybe you can be the one who steps up. Maybe you need to be the one who steps up so that we end 
the MDD. Look, it's not easy to live that way in our families, which is why I have a third message, and this is good. I want to encourage you with this. The third message is this. God knows who we are. God knows our family history, and God can work with people like us. He loves to work with broken people. He loves to work with broken families. In fact, that's, that's all he's got to work with. And he manages to accomplish his work in the world and in this country and in this church with broken families and broken people. I don't think he's probably spent a lot of time reading the genealogy, you know, Matthew chapter 1. But the very, don't miss this. The very first words in the New Testament, we got them on the screen, I think. The very first words in the New Testament is this. So we got this, this, this new message of God's grace, and it starts this way. Jesus Christ came from the family of King David and also from the family of Abraham. And this is a list of his ancestors from Abraham to King David. His ancestors were, and there's a lot of them, but the first three right out of the box are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bad fathers, not necessarily men of integrity, and God says, my son is descended from these people. I can work with people like that. God can work with people like me and Pastor Jason and people like you. That's good news, I think. I think that's fantastic news. It's such good news that a lot of us have trouble believing it. And we are locked in thinking of our brokenness and our failures and our limits, aren't we? I want to I tell you a story about a former student of mine. I spent the bulk of my life teaching at a Bible college, and, and I got to know hundreds and hundreds of young adults and, and heard them tell their stories. They processed their journey. And I remember there's this one girl named Kirsten Anderson from Uppsala, Minnesota. Okay, and there's so many Swedish cliches in that sentence that I can hardly count them all. So here's this girl but she's clearly Asian. So you go, okay, there's an adoption in this story. And as I start to hear her story, she tells me this story. And this is 25 years ago I heard this story, and she was 18 then. So, you know, this, this is something that happened, you know, almost 45 years ago. She tells me the story of their adoption. I say, how do you end up in Minnesota, in small town Minnesota? And she said, well, here's the deal. I was an orphan in Korea, and I was adopted uh, domestically, two times. But both times when I was adopted, I was just the worst possible kid I could be. Because at that time in Korea, uh, if uh, the adopting family had the opportunity to return the child, can you imagine? They had the opportunity to return the child if things weren't clicking. So she said, I was the worst kid possible. I was adopted out two times, sent back two times, because here's the deal, I had a brother. It's an emotional story. I had a brother. He's the only, the only family I had in the world. And he was still back at the orphanage. And I wouldn't be separated from him. I didn't want to be separated from him. So I wanted to get sent back so I could be with my brother. Well, as it happened, then this family from Minnesota got involved in the international adoption. And uh, they, were, they were talking about adopting a little girl. And they said, well, she has a brother. Uh, would you take him? And they agreed to adopt both who they ultimately named Kirsten, and her brother. And, and they came to live in, in the United States, in Minnesota. And she's telling this story, and she says, um, 
We, uh, we slept on the floor. We didn't even use the beds because I didn't want to mess up the bed. I didn't want to create any, any extra work for uh, our adopted mom. And, and uh, her mom finally twigged on this, like, what's going on? And, and, you know, they had language barriers, and they worked it all out with translators. and what. But the gist of the story is this. Her mom finally discerned that this little girl and her brother were trying so hard not, not to get sent back. And she said, I used to tell my brother, you have to be so good. You have to be so good or they'll send us back. And so they didn't sleep in the beds. They didn't do any of that stuff. And their sweet mom finally convinced them, honey, you are ours. This house belongs to you. That bed is yours. That bed's yours to use. The food in the fridge is yours to eat. You belong here. This is for you. And I tell this story because, you know what? I struggle with this, but I'd say in, in our work, with people and couples, so many people have trouble receiving the fullness of the good news, which is not only that Christ has died to pay the penalty for my sins, but he has invited us into his house as his adopted sons and daughters, and everything he has is available to us. Everything he has is ours as sons and daughters adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. This is incredible good news. In fact, it's such good news, a lot of us can't believe it. And we're, we're living so carefully, and oh, God might send us back. Yeah? And so we don't live in the freedom. We don't live in the strength. We don't live in the power. We don't live in the joy that comes from this incredible message that God knows who we are. God totally knows who we are. We are Jacob. We've got some good moments. We've done some good things. But we're liars. We're deceitful. We're fearful. We're jealous. And God says, I know that. I know that. But I have made a promise. And I have put my hand on you. And that will never, ever change. That's good news. It's the story of Jacob. It's my story. And if you're in Christ, it's your story. I asked if they'd sing uh, this song again because uh, I think this song just nails it. So would you stand and sing as an act of worship and a confession of faith? God bless us all. Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope you enjoyed that message. Please subscribe to stay up to date with every weekly message. For more information on City Collective, please visit www.citycollective.com. Or if you're in the greater Vancouver area, come visit us for a Sunday. You can find more about our church and how you can get involved with what God is doing in the Lower Mainland. Have a great day.